I'd like to start back in the beginning of the chapter and read Jesus' words coming up through. So let's start in Matthew 5, verse number 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Stop there this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless a reading and the study of his word today. Lord, thank you for this time we can gather. Thank you for these people. Um, today, Lord, across the world, there is much to pray for, as there always is. Sometimes we need to be reminded. I, I think of, of the turmoil in places in, uh, like Afghanistan. I think of, of people who are suffering generally. Uh, I think also of people who are your children, God, who... The blessed ones, Lord, uh, those who you are working in, you've saved, you've taught them, yet they're facing incredible persecution, even in this moment, Lord, some of them even to the loss of life, Lord, I pray that you would sustain them, that you would strengthen them, that you would hide them in the shadow of your wing, even in this moment. that even if it does come to a last breath, that their faith would be as bold then as it has ever been. Lord, it seems like this beatitude has a lot to say about that. And uh, just pray that you would strengthen your church, your, your body today. And in the days going forward, and, and I think of other concerns like uh, this weather, Lord, uh, maybe we won't get much of it, but some will suffer because of it. Lord, many reasons to, to cry out to you, to, to, to yearn for you, to desire you, Lord. And uh, if nothing else, show yourself clear in this, in this passage today. Show yourself clear in our hearts and our minds. May we come away seeing more of you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Good news for the pure in heart. Good news for the pure in heart. One of the things I appreciate most about uh, the Bible, about the Christian faith, is the simplicity. Um, Typically, things become complicated when we complicate them. Uh, now, I'll admit, I'll admit that I try to enjoy, or I try to enjoy figuring out the more complicated things in life sometimes. Uh, I like the finer details in life just as much as the next guy. I like hearty discussions. I like talking about this and that. I like, you name it. Even down to a, a, a spirited Discussion. We won't call it an argument, uh, but a spirited discussion. I enjoy those kind of things. But oftentimes, um, I find that things are complicated 
when I complicate them. And I really appreciate what we've been learning in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically in the Beatitudes, because I think oftentimes, I don't have to do this. There we go. That's, that's better. See, I told you I shouldn't trust too much in technology. It's not even working very well this morning. But I think oftentimes um, we like to overcomplicate things. Christ's teaching in this passage has been very clear. It's been uh, really rather simple. And uh, as we read down through these things, we come to something like this this morning that says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is a wonderful promise. That's a wonderful promise. It is so encouraging. Uh, we should not try to overcomplicate it, but rather take it for what it says. Um, as a carpenter, one of the things that I have learned over the years is that the simpler a design is, the simpler a design is, the simpler a project is, the simpler that a detail is or whatever it might be, um, then the more detail-oriented you have to be for it to come out well. A door or a room or a design doesn't need a lot of complicated detail to be beautiful, but something else is true. The simpler something is, the more well thought out it needs to be. Uh, the simpler a detail on the project, the more perfect it has to be for that beauty to shine through. When there's not a lot of fluff to hide behind in a design or a detail, there's little room for discrepancy. Simple doesn't have to mean boring, less than, or minuscule. It can be very beautiful. And it's a remarkable display of God's craftsmanship, if I can move the metaphor over a bit, that he designed our means of knowing and following him in relatively simple ways. The false religions and cults of the world try to shroud, or they do shroud, truth, and they shroud knowing God and finding him and coming to him in all kinds of complication. But it's not just in the false religions and cults of the world. That can happen in our own faith as well. By the time of Jesus, uh, some of God's people had been severely complicated, or they had severely complicated their means of knowing and following God. They had taken God's pure word and his law, and they had tried to safeguard it by adding to it piles of regulations and explanation and additional laws. Um, and at the time of Jesus, these were just oral traditions, but not long after that, they would be written down. Uh, they would come into first what we know as the, the Mishnah, and then a large compilation of commentary on those things would be the Gemara, and those were compiled into the Talmud, which is basically all of the oral traditions of the Jewish people written down. And even though the written forms of those didn't exist at the time of Jesus, the oral traditions did. And when we study much of what Jesus is speaking about and much of what he's addressing, even in the Sermon on the Mount, has to do with what he saw as the danger in those oral traditions. What had probably began with good intentions explaining and fencing in God's law to make it specific and applicable to every detail of life, ended up oftentimes becoming a detractor from it. That's why when we come to these Beatitudes and Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it's so important that we see it in its relative simplicity. 
We ought to see it as the breath, the breath of fresh air, rather, that it is. Jesus' teachings call out against our human tendency to complicate things, to focus on our outward religion. And there's no more clear picture of that, I think, than what we see today in Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In this beatitude, I would submit that Jesus underscores the searching and seeking, really, of all the religions in the world. There is some desire to connect to, to access, to appease, to, to please deity of some form. There are many attempts. There are many false systems. Yes, there are many complicated means and many methods to try to get there, but Jesus makes it simple here, doesn't it? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So our task today really is to biblically define this simple message. Not to take away from it or detract from it, but just ask, what is Jesus telling us here? And here's kind of a big idea for today. If you're following along on your outline on the back of your bulletin, you'll see this there as well. The pure in heart have a singular overarching desire for God and his ways. They are blessed because their desire will be met in seeing God. So we ask some questions then. What is this heart that Jesus is speaking of? What is this heart that Jesus is speaking of? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, seeing God is kind of a big deal. Purity, maybe we have a grasp on that. What is pure in heart? What is this heart that Jesus is talking about? We're familiar with our hearts physically. We learn about them in school. We see photographs and graphs. We know basically what they do in pumping, pumping oxygenated blood throughout the, the body. We, we become utterly familiar with their importance when they stop working very well, right? Now, the heart is vital. Jesus is speaking here in a metaphor, knowing that the heart is vital, but when he uses the word heart, he uses a word and a metaphor that is very common in all of Scripture. If you do a simple search in whatever translation you might read, um, somewhere around 900 times the word heart is used between the Old and the New Testament. There's an undeniable weight and a significance to this metaphor that Jesus adopts here as well. It follows all throughout the Bible. Now, sometimes those words are referring to the physical body, but most often, I would say probably nine times out of ten, the heart being referred to as Scripture is something much more than that. And uh, we won't read all 900-plus references in church this morning, much to your chagrin, I know. Um, we'll only do about 800, so we took 100 off. How's that? Just joking, but I do want to. I do want to look at quite a few references today. Um, so bear with me. Um, there's going to be a lot of scripture read. If you miss it, you can jot down the references. If you want to ask me later, I'd be happy to give you my notes. But I want to read quite a bit to get a background of what Jesus is speaking of here. Uh, firstly, uh, Genesis six verses five and six. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, 
and it grieved him to his heart. Now, in context, this, of course, is a story of the, the great flood, the story of Noah. Now, we get a picture here in the first use of the word heart like this in the Bible um, that God is going to use this term in a very significant way, even if the metaphor seems a bit shaded at times. He speaks of the evil intentions and thoughts of the heart. So already our, our physical understanding of what the heart does is thrown off a little bit. We don't typically think of the heart having intentions, and we certainly don't think of it having thoughts, but that's the way God speaks of it. And then in the same passage, he uses the same word to refer to himself, and he says that he was grieved in his heart. So the heart isn't purely physical, and it's not purely emotional, as perhaps it gets used metaphorically a lot in our day and age, it involves thinking. It involves intentions. It also involves hurting. Another one, Exodus 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart that he will not let the people go. We move ahead in Scripture, we come to Moses and Pharaoh. Here we see that the heart can become hard. This hardening would cause Pharaoh to withhold an action, specifically letting God's people go. It would withhold his action of releasing in, or giving into the suffering specifically here of the plagues. We see then that a heart can be hard or, or stubborn. It has to do with our will or desire. Another one, Deuteronomy 29, verse number 4. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Here Moses is telling his people, uh, he's reminding them really of all that God had done for them in the Exodus, the miracles that they saw, the deliverance that they saw. But he says that they did not have hearts to understand it or eyes to see it. So the heart can involve understanding. It can involve perception as well. We keep going. 1 Samuel 1. This is an interesting one. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Of course, we come to the historical books and the story of Samuel. Samuel's mother, Hannah, was praying that God would give her a son, and she was in such a spirit of prayer that she was only praying, the Bible says, in her heart. Her lips were moving, but no sound was coming out. And Eli thought, this woman is drunk. What is she doing? But she was in intense prayer. The heart then can be a point of communication, here of communication with God. The tru that truth is perhaps most evident when we come to the Psalms. The Psalms are, are riddled. They're, they're loaded with references to the heart, mostly in this kind of sense. The Psalms really dig down into the depth of human experience, thinking, feeling, and prayer. And the heart is right in the middle of all that activity. Consider a couple. Psalm, verse, sorry, Psalm 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Here the psalmist is giving thanks, he says, with his whole heart. 
The contrast, if there is one there, I think, is of merely giving thanks with the lips. The heart, then, is perhaps a deeper or a truer, more intimate portion of a person. There is a, a depth, there is a genuineness to whatever is in the heart, whatever is heartfelt or expressed. Psalm 10, verse 17. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Here's a concept that we see all throughout the Psalms. I could share a lot of it, or really all throughout the scripture, but we see the idea that the heart can be strengthened or encouraged, or it can be weakened and discouraged. It can be uh, it can be strengthened by the Lord, or it can be discouraged by circumstances. It's tied again to desire here. O Lord, you will strengthen their heart, you will incline your ear, hear the desire of the afflicted, he says. It's their desire, hear it. You will strengthen them. Another one, uh, Psalm 28, verse number seven. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song, I give thanks to him. Here we see the heart trusting, and we see the heart exalting. So we could say that faith exists in the heart, and worship exists in the heart. We've seen that the heart is where we can think and reason. The heart can be grieved and discouraged. The heart can communicate with God in prayer. The heart can will or desire. The heart can be stubborn or soft. The heart can give thanks. It can worship. The heart can give trust. It can exercise faith. It makes sense then what Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 23. This is probably a familiar verse. Keep your heart with all diligence or vigilance, for from it, flow the springs of life. I've always loved this proverb of Solomon. I memorized it as just a little boy. Um, I memorized it as a young boy in the King James Version, and it took me probably quite a few years before I finally came, came around to studying it and finding out what it meant. Um, I memorized it as, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And uh, whenever I thought of the word issues, all I could think of is somebody saying, well, that person has issues. <laughs> and uh, I don't think that's exactly what Solomon was getting at there. And it's, it's not. I, I think uh, maybe a little bit clear in other translations. From it flow, or from it issue, the springs of life. In other words, our life flows out of our heart. Now, physically, we might say that our life flows through our heart, it's, it's flowing because of our heart, but spiritually or deeper, the metaphor moves to this other sense of a heart, and it says our life flows from the heart. Our life flows from the heart. All of this then makes so much sense when we come to the words of Jesus. Now we're ultimately headed back to Matthew 5, in verse 8. That's what we're trying to unpack and discover here. But, but just look at a couple other references where Jesus then speaks of the heart. And I think we'll see some, some common themes here. For instance, Matthew 6, 
21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 9, verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Mark 7, 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, etc. Luke 6, verse 45. Uh, the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And we could go on and on there. Again, Jesus uses the word hundreds of times. Um, but we see that he uses the word in the same way the Old Testament, uh, the Moses in the, in the Torah, uh, the historical books, and the psalmists all use this word the same way. They use the word heart to describe thinking, to des describe desires, to describe worship, intentions, will, and emotions. And Jesus clearly would agree with the proverb that we just read that our life flows from the heart. Now, all that being said, here are a couple definitions of the biblical use of the heart. These aren't my words, but I think they kind of sum up what we've seen well. The heart involves the mind, soul, spirit, self. In other words, the source of life, of the inner person in various aspects with a focus on feelings, thoughts, volition, and other areas of the inner life. And then another one, perhaps, um, more simple to the point, the heart is a seat of physical, spiritual, and mental life. So this is how the Bible speaks of the heart. We didn't do all 900 references, maybe close to it. It's the seat of our lives. Our thoughts, emotions, desires, volition, all flow from our heart. Our life flows from our heart. What we say flows from our heart. What we want flows from our heart. How we respond flows from our heart. Uh, you could say that if you look at your heart, you see the direction you're going. You, you see where you're headed. You see what you're running or walking or driving after, so to speak. And if this is our heart, then we see that it is a pretty big concept in Scripture, and it's a pretty big deal, but it's also pretty simple. When Jesus is talking about our heart, he's really talking about our true inner life. So what does he mean when he says, it is blessed to be pure in heart? And that leads us to ask the second question, what does being pure in heart look like? Well, to answer it simply, being pure in heart would mean to be, be pure in the inner man, pure in desire, pure in thought, pure in will, pure in emotion. And we shouldn't complicate it too much. But we should ask one more question, I think. What does it mean to be pure? The word that Jesus uses for pure in this passage um, is often used and was usually used to speak of metallurgy, of refined metals. I've never done any kind of metallurgy. I, I work mostly with, with wood and books. Those are my things. Uh, I, don't, I don't do a whole lot of metal work, but I do understand that when you're trying to 
to cast something or to form something, you want as pure of a compound of metal as possible. When you buy a gold ring for your significant other, you want that gold to be as pure as your pocketbook will allow. When you drink water, you want that water to be as pure as possible. Now, we often think of something pure as being clean or not dirty. But I think the meaning is even more basic than that. Uh, for instance, a pile of dirt can be pure dirt, right? But it would still be fairly dirty. A more basic definition of pure is, is free from foreign matter, free from adulterating matter, or free of inclusions. That's how uh, metallurgists would speak of it. In other words, totally pure water is water that is just hydrogen and oxygen, right? A totally pure dirt pile would be a dirt pile that was all soil without any rocks or debris. So what then is a pure heart? A pure heart is a heart without inclusions, without adulterations, uh, any additional material that it's in it, in a pure substance, is a distraction. You could say that a pure substance is a simple substance. And you could say that a pure heart, hear me for a moment, is a simple heart. Now, not simple in the way that the scripture often speaks of fools being simple, but simple as if it's not distracted. The simpler something is, the more pure it needs to be. Any deviation in it brings a big distraction. And so, too, our hearts can be easily cluttered or distracted. Now think about this for a minute. If our heart reveals the direction that we're going, the flow of our life, the, the way we're walking or running or driving, whatever metaphor you want to use, then distractions in our heart can be detrimental. If our heart is the seed of the thoughts, the desires, the emotions, then it makes sense that Jesus would put a, a big emphasis on lauding a pure or a simple or an undistracted thought life, emotional life will, and desire. A good example of this is in Matthew 15, verse number 8, where Jesus says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This brings us back to that idea that as humans, we tend to complicate our religion. What I mean by that is we tend to bring into it distractions and impurities in that sense. We tend to add our own rules because we want to make it easy to follow, but in doing so, we make it more complex and mar the pure image of God that he's revealing. We tend to try to shroud clear truth with formulas and explanations, but Jesus is after a simple heart. He's after a pure, distraction-free, pure Desire, heart. In Mark 12, verses 28 through 31, it says one of the scribes came up and heard 
them disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your, your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is a great question to Jesus. A scribe had been hearing a conversation where Jesus was answering disputes uh, with such wisdom and authority, and he comes to Jesus and he says, you've been answering well. Let me ask you this. Simplify this, he says. Boil it down for me. What is the most important commandment? Now, I don't know if the scribe would have been thinking just of the laws in the Torah, or if he would have been thinking of the oral traditions or whatever, but Jesus boils it down to a commandment that is found in Deuteronomy 6, and he gives what is now known as the great commandment. In other words, what is the most important thing? What's the main objective? What's the sum of everything boiled down? It is to love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second flows naturally from it, to love your neighbor as well. That is a simple message, the, the simple but great commandment. That is the summation, the boiled down version, the distraction-free version, if you will. In another place, Jesus said of the same passage that on these two commandments, all the Old Testament hangs. In other words, it all comes back to this. This is what a pure heart does. It loves God supremely with every stitch of will, of thought, of emotion, of might. And it loves others as well. A pure heart is a simple heart. Again, not a foolish heart, but an undistracted heart. Every distraction in our life is a distraction from this. Do we love God supremely? And how easily are we distracted from that? I can admit, I have not, and I do not, and I will not always love God supremely with every fiber of my being. That's really what this commandment calls for. That God would be the chief aim, that he would be the end, the, the desire of mankind in the very fabric of our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is what a pure heart longs for. That's what a pure heart desires. That is where a pure heart is going, and that, that is why a pure heart is blessed. So what is then the good news for the pure in heart? The good news for the pure heart is that it will get what it desires. It will see what it has been looking for. 
The aim of all religion is some right standing in relationship to some God, but the aim of a pure heart is God himself, the true God, the God of Scripture. And not only is he the aim, but he is the reward as well. Maybe one question of application would be this. If we could ask God for one thing, what would it be? Now, that's a very personal question, I know. Uh, so you can chew on that. And let me take a few steps out from it being personal for a minute. And let me ask it this way. If a pure heart could ask God for one thing, what would it be? If purity is a lack of distraction, a lack of inclusion, a lack of adulteration, if purity is simplicity, then what is the simple desire of the pure heart? I like your answer. Uh, I was thinking of Psalm 27.4. Listen to this. Listen to David's words. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In that moment, if you asked David, what is the one thing that you want? What is the one thing that you're seeking? What's the one thing that you're running after? What would David say? Now, David was a man like us. Perhaps sometimes he would have to be honest and say, right now, as a king, I want peace in the kingdom. As a father, I want restoration with my son. Uh, as an enemy, I want respite from my enemies. I want relief from my suffering. And he does seek those things often in the Psalms. But in that moment, all being boiled down, all coming down to the brass tacks, and he asked the Lord for one thing, one pure request. And if you ask David in that moment, what is it that you want more than anything else? David says, I just want to see the Lord. I want to gaze upon him. I want to see him in his beauty, in his majesty. I want him above all. The pure, undistracted heart desires God above all else. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Simply because they're morally clean? Uh, simply because they've kept up with a system? Why are they blessed? Because they'll get their desire. They'll see God. Is God your desire this morning? Is God my, dear, or my pure desire this morning? when all the distractions are boiled down, do I desire the Lord in my heart? Now, Jesus said later on in his ministry in John 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way 
speaking of his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now here is an amazing thing. God has provided a way that mankind can come to him, to see him, to know him. Uh, the gospel of Christ makes a way for the desire of the pure in heart to be realized. And it's not through piling on efforts. It's not through piling on systems. It's through the work of Christ alone. There is good news for the pure in heart if we desire God. Because in Christ, that desire is satisfied and will be eternally satisfied. Blessed, Jesus said, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Lord, I pray, I pray for a pure heart. Lord, I pray for distractions to be boiled down. I, I pray for inclusions to be boiled down. I, I pray for, for rabbit trails in my life, in my will, in my desire, in my emotions to all be boiled down. I, I want to say, like King David said, I've asked you one thing, God. I want to see you. I want to see your majesty and your beauty. I want to dwell with you all the days of my life. Lord, make my heart pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, you said, Lord Jesus, for they will see God. We will see you. What a wonderful promise. May you be our aim, our desire. Our life flows from our heart, Lord, and may it flow in a stream that leads to you as we follow you, as we seek you.